Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a guest to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason. We'll talk about what excites us, what engages us, maybe what frustrates us, and we'll follow the poem in the conversation wherever they turn. Afterward, we'll have a little bit of silliness because I cannot help myself and then a poetry game. I'm so happy today to be joined by Dr. Greg Laundy. Greg is my colleague here at Cornell in the Department of Literatures and English. He's the co-editor of The Cracked Looking Glass, Essays in Honor of the Leonard L. Milberg Collection of Irish Prose Writers. And he teaches courses. I have to share the titles of some of them because they're so fantastic. There's World Poetry of the Pluriverse, Comic Books and Graphic Novels, colon, Delinquent Reading After Modernism, and Let Me Count the Ways, Poetry and Mathematics. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. I had this, ar- not an argument, I had a discussion with my wife. She thinks that this is the second best known American poem. I Wow. Yeah. Did, what would you think the first she is? Said, a Christmas poem oh, of some kind? No, she said uh, The Road Not Taken, which I feel like... A lot of people who go to college know it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the Raven, I feel like, has permeated the culture in a different way. Yeah. But I as mean, in, I've seen very recently half price tatted at Michael's and Target with like poor boulderization fake quotes <laughs> of, of, oh my uh, of the Raven. Like I actually this year for the first time saw Halloween decorations that didn't have even an actual quotation from the Raven. They just were like a, a fake sentence. Printed in kind of gothicy font, so um, yeah, it's certainly That's, got the most tat. Yeah, I mean, there's an NFL team named after. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, real concussions happening underneath its. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that tapping, tapping, tapping. Right. That's a terrible joke in port. In port. Um, so we're not going to read the whole poem because it's it's long, listeners. If you'd like to to read it, it's worth reading. I have not encountered it really since high school in any specific way, and. There's a lot of delight in it that I had just not clocked at the time. So we're going to read a few stanzas, though. We'll alternate just to give the flavor and also to you know probably read some things that are important. So I'll yeah. turn it to Greg to read the first stanza, and we'll go from there. I'll begin by reading the first stanza. But I mean, partly I'm already reading it out loud, thinking about how many versions of this we have on record. And there are always these, like or a ton sort of Basil Rathbone mm-hmm. and, you know, or, or like <laughs> camp Gothic Vincent Price takes on it. But I like Homer Simpson's version in oh. the House of Horror episode. And particularly because I think that this is partly a poem about a bad student. And I think it's a poem that's as tricky as Road Not Taken. Wow. And that that's right. Famously a poem that's got a little puzzle of the fact that there's no actual difference between the two roads so that the consolation of having made all the difference is actually a difference that's you know retrospect i think this is also a poem that's testing us and doing weird little riddles and things so yeah you're gonna nail Um, the game by the way just i already i am yes you are (laughs) is it is it acrostics no we'll um, get there (laughs) i'm gonna share with like long time uh listener first time caller as i was telling you i share with previous guests the trepidation about the game oh i'm afraid you're gonna nail it (laughs) once upon a midnight dreary while i pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore while i nodded nearly napping suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping rapping at my chamber door 
to some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly, I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate, dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mane of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. This the ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven. Ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. There's been an escalation uh, <laughs> by the final stanzas. <laughs> prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend. I shrieked up starting, get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted Nevermore. Said an appro appropriately uh, gloomy <laughs> tone here in the studio. I'll I'll just go ahead and start with the the big question. What's the main reason you wanted to talk about this poem? Why did I choose the poem? There's not a single. <laughs> <laughs> it may be too big a question. No, no. Um, it's a poem I kind of can't stop thinking about. Really, it's a very much a, a poem that I became obsessed with at a certain point in a, a strange kind of pivot point in writing oh, the book that I've been been working on, the Poetics of Large Numbers. It was always a project about long poems, and of course, pose the kind of first to lay this down as a challenge or a problem to poetry, the mm -hmm. essay that he writes that no one was asking for. Like, <laughs> this, is a poem, this poem is as clear as a poem could be. It's yeah. a nice little story. It's a, and, and then he's like, but I bet you want to know how I, how I did that trick. <laughs> and the no one who was asking for that says, well, you know, what, what would that be? And the philosophy of composition, his like, lecture circuit 
talk that he gives mm-hmm. about the meticulous quasi-mathematic construction of it. I'd always found that kind of fascinating, and it's something that I'd thought about a little bit, the strangeness of the ratios he mm-hmm. declares and the specificity with which he talks about the number of lines in the poem and mm-hmm. all these things. I mean, everyone sort of recognizes the essay is a bit of a hoax. It's something that is, no, is nevertheless practically inventing kind of close reading as a mm-hmm. strategy. Well, it's funny. I want to pause just to, yeah. to include. So uh, I, if you haven't read his philosophy of, of composition, I, I'm not sure I recommend it. <laughs> it's, it well, it's it's fascinating. It's yeah. also, but like you said, people read it as a hoax. And I'm reading it. I'm like, this is not how you wrote this poem. This can't be how you wrote this poem. Yeah. But he comes up with these very specific he calls them mathematical rules that a poem really, you know, this poem needed to be around a hundred lines. You know, poems can't be too long or they lose their single effect. It's clearly, it's not based on anything specifically mathematical. It's clearly feel in a way. The or it seems like that. The funny thing is, as I started looking into this, mm-hmm. it's fully based on mathematics. Oh my God. There's a hidden upside downness, I think, to this poem. And there's a, there's a part of me, the bold claim is I think that people have been reading this poem wrong since. It came out practically 1845. Oh, wow. It is, I think, absolutely a poem weirdly about astronomy and about space and about number and numerology and and statistics in a weird roundabout way. Mm-hmm. But like a roundabout by someone who was military trained in the absolute cutting edge of oh. calculation. He was a student at West Point and a pretty good student. He was like third out of his class. And in French, he was... Or in math, he was maybe seventh in his class out of 85 in, in mathematics. And the French was needed to interpret the math because of the École Polytechnique and this these new engineering schools devoted to the spread of Napoleonic Empire or the spread of Republican ideals before that. Or yeah. in the U.S., the spread of you know territorial conquest. All of his classmates go on to conduct territorial surveys, coastal surveys. Oh, wow. and they're the ones doing this kind of regimentation mm-hmm. mapping of of territory that they're claiming. That's that's a that's in that way. And so when he's talking about these distinct limits, he's he's playing with concepts that are very heated in the in the sort of world of calculus, algebra of, of calculation of oh, space. Oh. So but the way that factors into it's weird. Basically at one point I was like, why 108? Why is it 108 mm-hmm. lines long? <laughs> Particularly, I, st- I just started calling BS on a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was also this point where I was miserably uncertain of my own work and depressed and having a very hard time getting things done. Mm-hmm. This is about a year after I'd moved up here and I was sort of trying to figure out what the project was. An enormous amount of change. And so these moments that I'd read for years where he's saying, it appears evident then that there is a distinct limit as regards length to all works of literary art, the limit of a single sitting. And he goes on that, you know, within this limit, the extent of a poem may be made to bear mathematical relation to its merit. In other words, to the excitement or elevation and the degree of the effect. And he's talking about ratio and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I started just feeling the hand on my shoulder holding me down for that single sitting. Like it's a particularly strange thing to say is your ideal limit in a poem that ends with someone in a state of eternal sitting. Yeah. So if the distinct limit as regards length is 
the limit of a single sitting, mm -hmm. then why do we have a poem that ends? And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. So the raven never flitting still is sitting, still is <laughs> sitting on the pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door. And you start noticing if you're looking at like what his decisions are in the philosophy of composition, that every single one of them distinctly overturns something that's going on in the poem. So mm -hmm. he says the ideal length of a poem is 100 lines. <laughs> I couldn't quite get it there. This one is 108. If 100 is the ideal and these are six-line stanzas, you could at least lose one of them mm -hmm. and you'd be a little closer, right? Yeah. Like 102, pretty good. Yeah. Getting <laughs> a little more accurate, your mathematical merit and all that stuff. But he makes a statement late in the essay where he says, to get the proper effect, I had to add two stanzas to the end. So there's all these moments where he's pointing us to the variability of our experiences of length and poems. I think it has to do with the ways it's a seasonal poem. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to do this kind of as the seasons are turning, as the days are getting darker. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, I have to... So one dimension of time that I find fascinating, and I want to hear just sort of the basic layout of what he's actually saying about space yeah. and time in the cosmos. But one of the things that fascinates me about this poem is the way in which it reads for so long until the last stanza as if this thing he's remembering and it's retrospective yeah. and as if he's retelling his emotions from the, you know, the sort of Wordsworth distance. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, what is the phrase? Uh, emotion recollected in tranquility. And thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I'm getting old. <laughs> so, so is Wordsworth. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> and so it reads like that kind of retrospective and, and the emotion builds up as it goes only for us to discover that he's still in the midst of this feeling. Yeah. And so there are kind of like two dimensions of time one that seems as the past retelling, and then clearly it is that present retelling. And so he's clearly interested in time and the way we experience time. Yeah. So, And it, it's a poem that's impossible in that sense. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're stock still and immobile and, and scared to death forever, yeah. beneath this shadow forever, at what point did you write this? <laughs> yeah. Hypermetrical, really, really heavily formalized. He's taking a meter... In philosophy of composition, he'll say, like, oh, I'm looking for novelty in meter, but it's it's pretty much taking it most directly from a performance in Elizabeth Barrett Browning's work. There's oh. a lot of different things kind of informing what he's playing up as ideal. Well, the other, yeah. I did want to mention one other dimension of time, because mm -hmm. I, like I said, I hadn't read the poem in years. There's something about the sing-songiness that I yeah. resisted in high school. Yeah. And... What's great about coming back to it now is that he actually has a really incredible ear. There are some lines that are so sonically beautiful where the repetition of sound gets varied with some other things going on. Part of it has to do where certain things fall metrically. But there's this line, Lenore is nameless here forevermore and here is emphasized. And I kept finding myself what is the here? Yeah. And first I read it as the poem, and then he goes on to mention her multiple times. Is it here in on earth? Yeah. You know, and she is not nameless. She's literally nameless in the sense that that she is not existing, and so her name is not referring to a thing that is present in the world. Yeah. I think the the name Lenore is particularly strange in that it's recalling Eleanor, it's recalling Helen, uh, figures that have kind of recurred in his poetry at various points. But mm -hmm. the Lenore itself, I believe, just means light. Mm -hmm. So it's someone who is desperately waiting for the light. Mm -hmm. Will this come back to me? And one of the tricks of the poem and that that sense of timing is he does this in a few poems, but it's 
the poem is beginning at a really specific time of the year. Yeah. Right. We get midnight mm -hmm. in the first stanza. In the second, we get that it was the bleak December, mm -hmm. which is to say that this is the this is the solstice. So it's he's around the longest night of the year. It's the darkest. And when mm -hmm. he says eagerly, I wished the morrow, wish all you like. Like, <laughs> what are you finding in your quaint and curious volumes of forgotten lore? Mm -hmm. It's even starting there. Forgotten lore. How did you forget them if you're looking at them, right? Like you're yeah. holding them to some extent that that sense of this is lost forever, but you're putting it on the page. So that that italicized here feels like it's playing out a dynamic that occurs a couple times in the poem. Mm -hmm. And he does this in other poems. There's an early poem called Evening Star that begins, "'Twas noontide of summer and midtime of night, mm -hmm. and stars in their orbits shone pale through the light of the bright cold moon, mid planets her slaves, herself in the heavens, her beam on the waves." Which is like a timing of the lyric to the point of uh, planetary orbits, perihelion or apex, or the solstice. So these moments where things in their orbit are at their most extreme. Mm -hmm. He seems to keep coming back to putting poems in those places. And he's even got poems that seem to test, do you know where your speaker is speaking from? Mm -hmm. If your poem has got a speaker that is very conventionally talking about, oh, the stars and the birds, this is also in a period where he's worshiping Goethe. He's thinking a lot about kind of global climate study hmm. as as conducted by someone like um, Humboldt. Alexander oh. Humboldt, he dedicates his final poem or prose poem, Eureka, to Humboldt. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, if your lyric speaker is talking about birds or stars, what constellations are in view? Mm -hmm. What flora and fauna are native to the place that might identify something about who is this that's addressing us? And in Sonnet to Science, he has a moment where the original draft ends with a terrible couplet that, and <laughs> that rhymes shrubbery and me. Uh, like not a good rhyme. And, um, <laughs> and then he changes it to from shrubbery to the tamarind tree. Okay. Which gives a kind of like, where is tamarind natively grown? Mm -hmm. And once you start realizing that the speaker is not someone who's hailing science or thinking of science from a, a Western, global, northern kind of perspective, but seems to be like, oh, you didn't know. The sonnet ends up being a sonnet where it reveals at the last minute, maybe, mm -hmm. that your speaker is actually geographically or on Earth in yeah. a different place than you had expected. And I think that's what's going on here okay. in that this is a poem that's all about the speaker coming in so distinct. Mm -hmm. I remember perfectly. <laughs> I mean, I was pondering and I was nearly napping and I was reading books and kind of falling asleep over them. And then, and then he'll lie to the bird. Mm -hmm. He says, I was napping. It's not what you said before. You said you were nearly napping. Mm -hmm. Each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. I mean, the pointillism of that mm -hmm. observation mm -hmm. is in such sharp distinction to the generalities that we get later. The lamplight or him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And sort of like all of that suggests that we get to this chiaroscuro scene that just ends frozen. Mm -hmm. Like that will continue. But lamp oil wasn't cheap <laughs> that that seemed to actually have that continue forever yeah you would need the merit that he talks about within this limit of sitting the extent of a poem may be bad to bear mathematical relation to its merit if you want the most merit then create a situation of unlimited sitting one that just kind of goes on mm -hmm. forever and so like the mm -hmm. the weird discovery of the poem for me feels like a perpetual motion machine by the end where yeah. that 
sense of timing has been obliterated and the memory that he seems to want to praise himself for has gone, given way to his own solicitation of it. It's sort of averaging into something that ramps up into something valuable for him for Poe. I really like that reading. I just I do want to mention, since you mentioned the tamarind tree, that in in philosophy of composition, he does say it was originally a parrot, which <laughs> is so funny. But the yeah, the raven's such an important choice in terms of the the thinking about it as a perpetual motion machine. The raven is of the saintly days of yore. Mm-hmm. It's the long forgotten lore. There's a way in which, in part, it seems like he wants everything. The speaker wants everything from the past to, you know, give them that surcease of sorrow that if he can look to timeless things, they will provide him some sort of solace or some sort of distraction. And ultimately, the idea of the timeless by the end of the poem, by unstopping time, swamps him in grief. He's never going to escape that grief because he can't escape the room. He can't escape the raven. But he's built himself an escape room and then been like, <laughs> who put this lock here? Because the the Nevermores, the, the plot of this poem... I think is betrayed by a beautiful reading of it. Mm-hmm. The plot of this poem is pure Laurel and Hardy, right? This is who's on first. He's like, what's your name? Mm-hmm. Nevermore. That's a funny name for a bird. Where'd you get that? Nevermore. Oh, you're going to leave me like all the rest. When will you, when are you going to be leaving me? Mm-hmm. Nevermore. Oh, you're not leaving. Well, I really would like it if you left, you know, nevermore. and, and it's just this, like, he's, seeking the most masochistic self-flagellation through this repetition, knowing you're going to get the same thing back every time. So it's sort of, it's like a who's on first routine. It's a little bit of a, almost a Turing test or something like that, that Mm -hmm. he manages to completely fail. I like the, I like thinking of it that way as that kind of masochism, because in the opening, not the opening stanza, the second stanza, it's the nameless here forevermore. And then the nevermores are all contradictory. And the, the evermore is this idea of that there's something about grief that obviously we want to escape. And yet there's something about it he wants to stay in. Cause really the only way Lenore can stay with him is if he stays in his grief. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense thinking of it as this kind of self-flagellation and that there's a pleasure in the anger. One of the things I, I really, coming back to the poem, because the sing-songiness that I resisted has to do with that there is so much repetition mm-hmm. of lines. And here it works in sort of character development. You can hear the ways in which early on it's sort of apolo- the sort of apologetic, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but. And then by the end of the poem, it's him ramping up in this anger yeah. and developing that anger. He's so in, like, he's into the performance in a way. Absolutely. And and getting himself heated, ramping himself up into that state of of sort of passion and fury that the then the essay will say that's the the cue for mm-hmm. a poem really working or something. Yeah. Okay, so there's there's just a lot of internal contradiction in the poem. Like mm-hmm. the the voice keeps contradicting itself. Yeah. And there's a late T. S. Eliot essay where he's talking about Poe and kind of going back to Poe mm. and recognizing an influence that he didn't suspect. He, like so many people, find Poe young and then recognize that whatever Poe was trying to do as a poet, it's very sing-songy, it's very sort of silly, often playing games and doing things that we don't mm-hmm. necessarily always want poems to do now. He's got acrostics and he's yeah. fully writing riddles, essentially, which is this long tradition, especially in poems relating to math, like there was a, a publication called uh, The Lady's Diary, The Lady's Almanac, which ran for, I believe, over 100 years, a 
math journal out of England that was full of these poems about navigational problems, practical mensuration problems, just these like story problems written in verse posed to the correspondents who would then write back a solution to the riddles about math or sometimes they're sort of multi, multi-numerate linguistic puns. So mm-hmm. Roman numerals being used as both letters and numbers in a poem to sort of pun around those huge amounts of these math problems in verse. So when he says this poem is sort of playing with mathematics or is thinking about precision in those ways, mm-hmm. he's got a tradition that he's pointing towards that will eventually be covered over quite a bit by the dramatic monologue and the rise of of the kind of things that this is more legible as now. Matthias Elliott in this late essay where he's like, it's always strange to me that Poe is somewhere there in my thinking about verse. He said, we've just heard the raven described as stately, but we are presently told that he is ungainly an attribute hardly to be reconciled without a good deal of explanation with stateliness. Tons of these things all throughout the poem. And if we start looking for them, he calls this Poe's irresponsibility towards <laughs> the meaning of words. Mm-hmm. And that incommensurability or irresponsibility is like everywhere. We hear the bird twice described as ominous, but the narrator is the one that's talking in omens and prophecies. He's prognosticating. He says he sits engaged in guessing this and more I sat divining. So he's trying to predict this utterly predictable burden or refrain. Every time I say something, it's going to say never more back. So he's a terrible prognosticator. He's a terrible <laughs> predictor of the future, and he can't seem to, to do it. But he's furious that the bird is, is the one that seems to know the future better than he does. So he starts to sort of maniacally embrace these leading questions that just get him the most misery. And he trades material for time at some point. Mm-hmm. It's a poem that for a while, I think against what a lot of people remember about it, the f- refrain is nothing more. And then it switches to nevermore. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference between those yes. two. And he keeps talking about this one word, which is only, which is a neologism, right? He's like, he's coined it. He's sort of fused two things awkwardly together and called it one. And that starts happening all throughout the poems. Uh, there's something that Poe writes Elsewhere, he says, there's something in the vanity of logic which addles man's brains. Hmm. Your true logician gets in time to be logicalized. And then, so far as regards himself, the universe is one word. A thing for him no longer exists. And so that trade from nothing more with the thing in there to nevermore is a big shift and a troubling one. If you want to think about how we measure time or how we get to assess our own time. So when he's saying in the philosophy of composition, longer than a half hour and uh, a sitting or the length, he gives 108 line, 100, 108 lines. In the poetic principle, he sort of says the same point, says it's a half hour mm-hmm. and beyond that. Our, <laughs> if we're still reading after half hour, our attention flags, fails, a revulsion ensues. Yeah. Standardization of time was kind of happening all alongside this right. poem. So, like, even the idea of that is such a brutal culling of someone from their own ability to rest as long as you might in a poem, or for you to pronounce a name or a line with the sort of breathing rhythmic sense of possibility and, and contraction and expansion. That's that's a lived rhythm rather than this like 
hard clocked yeah. thing. Well, that's uh, fascinating because yeah. of thinking about what different art forms do in relationship to time. Music is fixed in time. Mm-hmm. Dance is fixed in time. Reading is fluid. It depends on the reader. Yeah. It depends on whether they're reading aloud or silently. And then painting, it depends on how long you're viewing. And then I'm always interested in the difference between the time it takes to craft something and the time that it takes it, it takes to read because so much, so much more time goes into the creation of it. And there, there's no way that time can be matched. No. Yeah. <laughs> by the exactly. reader. And something yeah. that comes out, I teach comics too. And it's mm-hmm. so, you know, apparent that a graphic novel might take 14 years to draw and write. Mm-hmm. And it's something you read really, really, really quickly often. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Though there's no natural stopping point to when you stop looking at a picture, when you stop, you know, reading a poem, this idea that there's a limit and that you have to exist within that limit is partly that without getting fully into the weeds of it is (laughs) what was happening with calculus in this moment that he was like learning it at military school. Mm -hmm. The pun that I make with this, the pun that I think is sort of active within that, that accusation of profit is that it's a poem about a poet or a speaker mm-hmm. figuring out how to turn a profit. Hmm. It's about him getting everything he wants and more out of a almost algorithmically precise, like constant mechanical return of, yeah. of a reply. Hmm. There's moments at first he seems to call the bird lordly, then a wretch. At first it's by that heaven that bends above us. By that God we both adore. Mm-hmm. But it's not that long until he starts saying that we wretch thy God mm-hmm. hath lent thee respite. So that idea that he's sort of at first recognizing a similarity and then overthrowing that in the name of, of inserting difference or yeah. something. Uh, or maybe I'm reversing that. Sorry. Yeah. Well, still, and it, and it happens to some extent on the pivot of wealth, because he's, you know, we get from his trappings that yeah. he's in the wealth, the bust of palace, the velvet cushion, and for the rejection of the raven in part to be wretch. And then yeah. even the, the religious difference, because those things can historically have been tied together. And so it's, it's fascinating how much more depth this poem has than I ever re- thought or remembered. Yeah. And it's, but it's a peculiar kind of depth. It's like the, the wealth gospel. Like it's a depth that's totally about, I'm, writing this airtight thing and you glory in, in it until you realize how suffocating it is. Yeah. And the essay is all about, I have figured out how to write the best <laughs> poem provided we think completely about a world that's, that's sort of beholden to time being regularized, universalized and, and clocked rather than experienced seasonally or in terms of the sort of waxing and waning of the light. I was talking to my brother last night and we were both just like, I just want to like, I just want to read long books right now. I just like, <laughs> curl up and I still have to do all this stuff and make stupid money. And this is exactly, I think that this is a huge part of what it means for him to say there's no such thing as a long poem. It's to say, if we're deciding things on a particularly like rationalist basis, you can't have long poems. Could be every epic, every religious poem, mm-hmm. you know, dramatic poetry. There's the amount of things that that annihilates in a breath is the the threat of the artificial intelligence rather than <laughs> than like oh my girl is gone and i miss her and now i'm going to talk to this bird uh, for what it'll give me but yeah, yeah i love i mean he is a rich guy in the poem yeah and the- so can sad on certain rustling of each purple curtain mm-hmm. which later it's, it changes color slightly and- <laughs> 
That's great. The, and in part, it's the, the last thing about time is that in thinking about the, the apt length of a poem is it's in part, it's the industrial revolution and capitalism and people's time being measured out in very yeah. different ways yeah. with that rigidity of time. For a man of leisure, a man of wealth, that is not measured in the same way. No. And so it's a particularly interesting figure to have him have it measured out in this way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now I have to be sure to hide my notes from you as we get into the silliness. Uh, as we continue what I'm calling the Ed Stravaganza of Edgar Allan Poe. As always, we have an ad, and today's episode is brought to you by the estate of Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe is not only one of our best-known American writers, he's one of the best-known American brands. And we're proud to announce that the estate of Edgar Allan Poe has reacquired the copyright to all of his works. So for a small fee you can become linked to one of the world's most recognized brands. Years ago, Baltimore's NFL team took advantage of this with their mascot, the Ravens, a fabulous tribute to the city in which Poe died, which Poe would obviously appreciate. And now that the estate of Edgar Allan Poe has these copyrights, all kinds of organizations are joining in. The Baltimore City Police are now known as the Baltimore City Poe Poe. There are Annabelle Lee Jeans and Amontillado Builders, whose walls are so well built no one could hear a scream coming from behind them. Not to mention others that you may have heard about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is the upcoming documentary about 2000s R&B, The Fall of the House of Usher, the, long, the luxury lingerie boutique, The Bust of Palace, and of course, the murder mystery spinoff of RuPaul's Drag Race, Murders in the Rue Morgue. So take advantage now of this brand opportunity. You too can join such content creators as Buck Wanders, who teaches you how to identify deer by their rears on his YouTube series, The Telltale Heart. All right. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Greg, it's time to play a game I'm calling Quoth the Famous. In this game, I'm going to play you audio of a famous actor reading a stanza from The Raven. Mm. Uh, Basil Rathbone is not part of it, uh, but you do have to guess the actor. The game does go from easy to hard, and there's one curveball thrown in, although I'm pretty sure you're going to get all of these. Um, and if you don't know who the actor is, I will give you a hint. Okay. Dr. Greg Londi, are you ready to play? I've never been more ready. All right. Here we go. Number one. But the silence was broken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this and nothing more. Rock it, man. Um, is, that, is that Shatner? <laughs> that is William Shatner. Fantastic. From some, I think, early 80s show. I have no idea what it was, but they just have him come into the room. He's holding a massive tome that he never <laughs> looks at or refers to. Perfect. Yeah. That's exactly what that's the plot of the poem. It's a, uh, yeah. a ham looking at books that he's not actually looking at. <laughs> yeah. I, I recommend it because, like, as with every Shatner reading, there are strange pauses where you would never predict. And yeah. part of the, the difficulty of getting the odd, you know, taking a clip from it is that he just will start running one stanza into the next oh, yeah. with no pause. That's his groovy way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Are you ready for number two? Sure. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling... By the stern and grave decorum of the countenance it wore, 
Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the night's Plutonian shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. <laughs> you already, you already guessed Price. it. That is Vincent Price. I have his cookbook. Really? Yeah, you should check it out. It's oh wow! Is it? Uh, it's not like goofy, ghastly meals or anything like that. Like he was an actual <laughs> foodie. Oh, and so it's a, it's just a so no, no cannibalism recipes. I haven't made it all the way through. Like I haven't finished all the recipes <laughs> in the meat section. So maybe, but um, delightful human scone. Yeah. Are you ready for number three? Sure. Okay. Um, this there's a little music in the background. I don't think it will prevent you from from oh, hearing it. I but. hate music. Yeah, same. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked up starting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul had spoken. This is Christopher Walken. This is Christopher Walken. With the bust above my door, take thy beak from out my heart. He's kind and of doing a shatter impression. My door, quoth the raven. Nevermore. It's, Nevermore. Yeah, I love the, at the end of every stanza, there's this weird sort of metallic. The, the fact that Poe's whole thing is, uh, is so precise, the meter and the run, and they've given this poem to people who put enjambments <laughs> at whatever place they want in their, in their sentences, you know, yeah. people most notorious for odd pauses. And- yeah. Well, one other thing to note. So, you know, they're in their places and you can hear it a bit where he just is rushing through mm-hmm. and something that's notable about all the recordings I watched is that parts of the poem are excised yeah. for time. And it's almost always at the beginning of stanzas. It's <laughs> often just whole stanzas as well. But it's just so like when you hear him, it's almost as if he's got somewhere to be the way. But he can't stop himself pausing. He's Christopher Walken. Yeah. All right. Number four. Uh, distinctly, I remember it was in the bleak December and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease That is Christopher Lee. Huh? All right. Sorrow, yeah. Do they, they just keep the all of these men in a room more. somewhere? <laughs> like, for the rare and radiant. Yeah, they're all in some in the angels place reciting Poe together now. Yeah. Well, his is the most... Sorry, I've got Nameless. Oh, yeah. Forevermore. His I'm is, sorry, listener, for speaking over. No, no, no. Christopher Lee. <laughs> well, his is of other than the number five, which you'll hear in a moment, is I think the one that is best performed. There's a patience in the way he reads it. There's mm. nothing hammy about it. Yeah. Um, and my clue for him, by the way, uh, if you couldn't place him, is that not only is he incredibly well known as a villain in his film roles, he recorded two heavy metal albums. Did he? Yes. Vocals, or is he doing every instrument? He's doing vocals. Okay, and they're so not like he's just shredding on every track. <laughs> no, no, he has a, he has his staff from he's Lord like of the Rings. He does every instrument on it. He's. Like, <laughs> I haven't listened. I can't bring myself to listen. But all right, this is the fifth and final. There's a curveball here, mm-hmm. which is there are four people oh. to identify. Uh, Okay. <laughs> so it's gonna be Don't I crash be short and shaven, thou? I said. A journal. 
Craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient Raven wandering Damn. from the nightly shore. Tell me, tell me what thy lordly name is on the nice Plutonian shore. Quoth the Raven. Eat my shorts. Stop it. He says never more. And that's all he'll ever say. Okay, okay. <laughs> I had forgotten just it's how a, good that is. It is good. Yeah. So, so that's Dan Castellaneta. Mm-hmm. Nancy Cartwright. Yes. Lisa. The, Lisa's. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's fine. You got Lisa. That's really what I was going. It's Yardley Smith. Yardley Smith. But there's one other you've forgotten. Isn't that James Earl Jones? That is James Earl Jones. Oh. Yeah. And there are, I didn't listen to them all the way through, but on YouTube, there are James Earl Jones reading The Raven. Um which yeah. I'm kind of curious to hear. I'd love to hear that. I'm. So, I mean, yeah. If if you get obsessed with Poe, you tend to get a lot of like nice little Poe gifts from people. Even he's such a author where there's Poe T-shirts and band aids and all that stuff. And some of these have been really great, and some where you're like, oh man. But um, <laughs> I really would like if for all the James Earl Joneses that are reading the poem, if there was just someone whose voice was cracking mm-hmm. or like. Betraying the nerves and the, the strange wheedling kind of, mm-hmm. you know, obsequiousness of this narrator. That's never captured when it's the best deep baritone voices that you've ever heard. Yeah. You know? But it's captured in the Homer Simpson voice. That's true. The, Homer's the closest. I yeah. Think. And especially when it ramps up to the end of the take thy peak without my heart. And it's also <laughs> funny because Bart is the raven and there are <laughs> all kinds of visual jokes. But it's really – it's I'd forgotten when, how good it is. Speaking of, of too many cultural gifts around a thing, I've, yeah. I used to watch The Simpsons religiously. And so over the years, I have been given board games and blankets <laughs> and comic books and so many Simpsons things. It's finally trailed off now that I'm into my 40s. So <laughs> – yeah, that's a blessing. <laughs> Greg, thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure, Charlie. Thank it, you so much for having me. Oh, let me ask this. I have <laughs> this. So how, how old is Aster? Aster's three. Have Aster's you, had, so have you shared any Poe with Aster yet? Aster, it's very hard to convince him that it would be worth trimming the little fingernails. So I'm constantly getting scratched mm-hmm. by this little toddler. Scratched, hit, all that stuff. And at one point, he actually drew blood. And so someone's introduced him to Poe in a general sense. But um, I was looking for a Band-Aid, and the only Band-Aids I could find was this tin of Poe bandages that my wife had given me a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's been introduced insofar as he's drawn blood and seen this strange little cartoon face appear on my body as a that's, the bandage. So um, that's hilarious. Yeah, he knows Poe is a healing force, I suppose. That's that that may be a new a new way for Poe to be. He, the other day he woke up in the crib and just started reciting Eureka. That was amazing. <laughs> I was like, where are you doing this? A different voice. Mm-hmm. Eyes rolled back. It was so cute. It was a whole yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you caught it on spooky paranormal activity yeah. kind of camera. I too, but it broke my phone. I'll try and catch it. Yeah. So can't trust the supernatural. Thank you so much for being here. Thank Greg. you, Charlie. And thanks to everybody for listening. If you enjoy the show, please do subscribe and leave a five-star rating. Written reviews help the show out a lot. Otherwise, go have a great day. Read some poems, pet some dogs, and support striking workers wherever they are. Bye. <laughs>